was Son, This Is She by Joe Meek, but it was actually performed, as you could hear, by John Layton, and um, is one of the really most remarkable productions and ideas that Joe Meek ever produced. And this is podcast 211, entitled Son, This Is She. We'll hear again from Joe and John Layton in a very uh, memorable manner at the end of the cast. And um, what uh, evokes such interest in myself, and I hope from you, is the um, way that um, ascriptions of power and significance and um, mandate that come vertically are just absolutely wiped away and not even seen by most people who actually um, look at this kind of material. What I really want to say is that there is a pervasive religiosity in the heart of a person and in the heart of those works of usually popular art that appeal to a person that is, as it were, not even seen by most of the people you're listening to and you're hearing. It's just not in the air tonight, but it's there because it's really there organically in the heart of a man, that is to say, in us. And um, I uh, was uh, motivated to think about this when I was uh, watching the conclusion of a of a much maligned movie from 1966 entitled Mr. Budwing. Now, this movie, the uh, um, facts about it are inessential. It's 
starred James Garner and Audrey Hepburn and is a Hollywood uh, a, a movie about an amnesiac, a man in his mid to late 30s, mid 30s, who wakes up on a park bench in Central Park and doesn't know who he is. And it's an hour and a half um, journey to find out who he is. And at one uh, most important point in the journey to discover who he is, and even more importantly, to discover who and where someone else is, he prays. He says, he says, God, please let her live. And it's powerful. I mean, the whole movie sort of suddenly transforms itself into uh, something that is real and emotionally real and full of heart. And um, I thought to myself, you know, I've read many commentaries on this particular um, um, sort of odd but interesting movie, and no one's ever mentioned that. No one's ever mentioned the fulcrum, the turning point of the entire thing. And I thought about a blog post I read by someone who is very well regarded in sort of movie critical circles, um, remarking on a movie that's recently been released on Olive, so it must be good, entitled, I think it's called Visitor at My Door or Stranger at My Door. I don't remember. Maybe Stranger at My Door from 1956. And it's a small and very good Western about a um, a, a pastor, a minister and his wife – who are wonderful, and the pastor is a little older than the wife, and a outlaw comes to their house in the middle of the night and uh, really tries to take away the wife and destroy the preacher and his son, as it turns out. And the uh, preacher, the description of the preacher is so outstanding and so meek and so touching and so real to anyone who has Christian sensibility or experience in ministry and with people that it just shines. The movie shines. And this uh, very um, self-righteous writer said, well, of course, the movie, which we like, I quote, because it's a Western with a strange, has one very strange and interesting scene in it. Uh, he says, we find uh, the religious elements of it offensive and deeply, um, um, you know, ring a totally false note. He said, the religious elements offensive. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this guy just doesn't like religion. So he, isn't, he doesn't even talk about what the movie is about. Because the movie is about an attempted ministry to an extremely far-gone person, which involves imputation, grace, and sacrificial love at the highest level, which is ultimately victorious, sort of Tyler Perry fashion. And yet this writer says, we find the religious elements of it insufferable. I think he even used that word. So I said, well, you know, that's interesting. What, what, is, what is going on with that? And then I thought about the fact that it is often stated that my own particular favorite Edwardian writer, Victorian and Edwardian novelist, whose name was Mark uh, Rutherford, but whose actual name was William Hale White, in a recent review of a book about um, White that is called Bedford's Victorian Pilgrim, William Hale White in Context by Michael Brealy, and it came out in 2012, a person whom I know but by reputation named Catherine Harland, who really understands uh, White, in my opinion, writes this. Um, Brealy, the author of the book she is reviewing, Catherine Harland is reviewing the book by Brealy about White. Brealy, writes Harland, correctly notes that there has been, quote, unanimous resistance to spiritual reading of White. Now, that is in fact the case. I mean, here is a writer who is almost 
only interested in religious questions. Yes, he debunks a certain kind of third-generation, really awful kind of evangelicalism, like in you know um, Silas Marner type of thing. It's a very easy target. He debunks that, and he came out from it. But but he he White is aspiring to his tippy toes to find out some Christian essence, an element that is transcending and deeper than the particular version in which he grew up. And he's really he's looking for Mockingbird. Oh, and by the way, this podcast is dedicated to Ethan Richardson, who is the editor of the Mockingbird Journal and is just an absolutely uh, his his letter to me yesterday prompted the thought process that made me take note of Mr. Budwing's prayer because he said, um, "What exactly is the nature of of a church religion that is not caught up with with all these negative uh, structures and forms and law giving?" Um, um, distortions. Uh, what is the essence of the real thing? And that made me think, well, it's in Mr. Budwing, of all things, and it's in Mark Rutherford, of all things. And I wanted to, um, I'll give you another example. It's two others, and then I'll, I'll discuss for a minute on, on a passage in White that is striking in the extreme that I think you'll remember. Um, Manly Wade Wellman. <laughs> now, he's a, really, he's a, a household word, right? Well, Manly Wade Wellman is among fans of 20th century American sci-fi and horror fiction, the absolute um, gold standard, Manly Wade Wellman. He's dead, but he wrote many, many, many stories that are highly sought after. I was in Toronto once and looking for some Manly Wade Wellman, and the guy said, you know, who ran this very smart gentleman said that Manly Wade Wellman is the most sought after first edition author of his era. I mean, you can't keep him on the shelves. Well, wouldn't you know that Manly Wade Wellman, who I think was the son of a missionary in the East, wrote uh, one of his best stories in his, uh, uh, um, what is it called? The guy is named John. I always forget the name of the hero of all his his guitar stringing uh, guy. Uh, There was a movie made about him, but one of Manly Wade Wellman's uh, most heartfelt stories is called Walk Like a Mountain. And that's about Christ, who appears in a kind of a hillbilly Appalachian sort of Western North Carolina format, specifically Jesus Christ, to help out in a situation. No no one who reads Manly Wade Wellman, uh, at least very few, uh, uh, will even want to think about that story. And then another thing occurred to me. I was thinking about this, uh, you know, Trump got into terrible trouble because he um, uh, mentioned a book of the Bible that he referred to as 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> as And all these people just jumped on him and said, you see, he's a complete hypocrite. He's not really a, he's masquerading as an evangelical Christian or something like that, a Protestant Christian, but he's not. He's just a fake. He's faking it. And that's why he said 2 Corinthians. And it was very interesting because, you know, that's not a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. Oh, there must have been thousands and thousands of uh, words and blog posts and Twitters about what was supposedly regarded as a mistake. But all the people that said that didn't know. I mean, they just, they obviously aren't in, a, they don't know. There's a lacuna in their background for whatever reason. Because 2 Corinthians, it's very common to say 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in the scholarship. Now, the funny thing is there's not a single scholar around, at least in America now, who would have defended Trump so no one heard the truth. I mean, we all knew, anyone who's in the Guild or is a freelance scholar, whatever it is, everybody knew that it's very common to say, well, in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle writes, or in 1 Corinthians 7, 2... 
Paul says, uh, states that that's, that's very common. It's common all the time. It's common in writing and the spoken word. But no one who would possibly want to be ever regarded professionally as defending in any way, shape, or form Donald Trump, so no one jumped to the man's defense. But he was absolutely within his rights. There was nothing wrong with that. Now, that just means that nobody knows nothing about anything. And I want to give you a couple of interesting, at least to me, examples. Oh, one other would be Howard Pyle. Everybody thinks about how. What do you think about when you think about Howard Pyle? You think about um, what is it? The Red. Oh, I always forget the, the night. The Howard Pyle who wrote uh, Boys. Um fiction about knights and so forth and men of iron men of iron it's a it just it was an era when everybody read men of iron uh and howard Pyle and ernie Pyle and that whole world and and yet does anyone realize that howard Pyle, who was a convinced quaker actually wrote a book near the end of his life called rejected of men anyone know about that book rejected of men in which howard Pyle tells the story of christ uh in a most um in a most powerful manner, sort of in the 1920s in America, and it's really good, and it has everything in it, the death, resurrection, even Pentecost, but it's told in sort of 1920s, sort of uh, just before the Great Depression kind of America, and it's really wonderful, and uh, by the way, my own denomination does not come off well. The, The major, the chief priests and the scribes are led by the dean of the Cathedral of the Advent, that is to say, in this northeastern city, he just put up the name, but nevertheless, uh, does anyone know about Rejected of Men? But listen to this. In um, 1908, William Hale White, who only really was interested in religion in one form or another, primarily, um, wrote a short story. He called it Little Nell. And what it is, is in Little Nell, is it's a lecture in which he, the author of the um, essay, is uh, uh, giving a lecture about the character uh, in uh, Dickens' novel, The Old Curiosity Shop, named Little Nell. And he gives a discursive lecture, and at one point near the end of the lecture, he is violently or uh, curtly interrupted by the uh, woman presiding at the uh, dais, and I want to record, he gives this long lecture about the character Little Nell in Old Curiosity Shop, but it's all because he wants to stage an event, which is unexpected by us, the readers, uh, that I'm going to read. It's called Little Nell, and it, it consists, this is fictional, an address delivered to the members of the Hesperus Club at Hazelhurst, Sunday evening, this is Hazelhurst in Sussex, Sunday evening, June the 7th, 1908. And he talks about the moment, you may remember it, in Old Curiosity Shop, when the grandfather kind of suddenly has a change of heart about his granddaughter and, and really has a, a massive kind of, it's in a, they're in a kind of a ruined church uh, yard, really, where they're sort of camping out, kind of, and the grandfather has a kind of remarkable turning of his heart to regard his granddaughter as the only real reason he has for living and the entire um, source of of all his own love and help for this terribly distressed child. And it's very moving. But this is what happens. This is the lecture, and then I'll read what um, William Hale White um, says happens. The lecturer says, I wish to call your attention to this passage. Some of the religious sects make much of what is called conversion. It is not so prominent in the Church of England, but amongst dissenters, Men and women who have led an irreligious or even an immoral life often are, or perhaps it is more correct to say often were, in times gone by, suddenly turned from indifference, disbelief, and evil ways to an earnest and practical faith in Christianity. I thought of Santana. I couldn't have to tell you. Back to the lecture. The lecture continues, we have examples of this miraculous or semi-miraculous change in the New Testament, the most striking perhaps being that wrought in Saul of Tarsus, who was struck to the earth by a light out of heaven, and heard the voice of him he had persecuted. 
The cause of the change in the old man in Old Curiosity Shop could not have been and never can be really insufficient. It may in this case have been a look, and we know that a look can melt a man's heart. The conversion of the grandfather is better than the conversion of the sects. It is brought about by human means, using the word human as it is commonly used, and it is not a selfish anxiety for the salvation of his own soul, but a disappearance of self in love. Now, this is what the writer puts in. The chairman, Miss Sybil Peck, rose and said she hoped the lecturer would pardon the interruption, but she was obliged to warn him that by rules of the Hesperus Club, theological subjects were prohibited. He had not, strictly speaking, transgressed at present, but he had almost assumed the possibility of something happening which was not the result of the operation of the common laws of nature, and there were many amongst his audience to whom such an assumption would be offensive. The lecturer bowed and replied that he would be most careful not to wound anybody's feelings and would therefore omit some remarks he intended to make on common and uncommon laws and common and uncommon people. Then he continues. Well, now, isn't that the most extraordinary thing? He's interrupted because he brings into um, the uh, account of Dickens of the conversion of the grandfather in Old Curiosity Shop a religious um, analogy and is shut up by the Hesperus societies. Later, it made me think, you know, if this were Dennis Wheatley, we'd find out that they were all part of a coven. They were all actually Satanists. You know, they probably were. But what I'm trying to say is, isn't that fascinating? I mean, there it is, right there in 1908. A man who is attempting to talk simply very objectively about something that is, in fact, clearly in the mind of Dickens, a kind of entire um, turning around of the heart through love and towards love. And he makes the analogy from the 17th century, uh, and um, he's shut up. Now, that is just fascinating. I've talked about Howard Pyle. I've talked about Mr. Budwing. I've talked about Manly Wade Wellman and Catherine Harlan's uh, review of Mark Brealey's discussion of this question in him. I've talked about Trump and two Corinthians. And I want to conclude um, by um, uh, mentioning two other authors, and then we're finished. And we're going to hear again from from, uh, John Layton and Joe Meek with a very interesting twist. In um, Isherwood, you know, people found it very, very difficult that Isherwood uh, was so interested in religion. And it was really problematic because today he's regarded as the first gay novelist, and that is true. Um, and yet aspects of, I mean, even if you read A Simple Man or whatever, not A Simple Man, what's it, you know, the one where the professor who dies at the end, very, very strongly religious conclusion of that novel. No one wants to read that. They want to read the gay uh, uh, foreshadowing of current attitudes and lives. And and he was a visionary. But in uh, his book, which is considered, it's called The World in the Evening. Uh, Isherwood himself didn't like the novel. I think it came out in 1952. And he didn't like the novel uh, for reasons that I don't think are related to the religion. But it is considered to be the first mainstream novel with a a definite and explicit gay um, subplot in it, uh, which is very powerful, actually. And I recommend the novel to you. But what they will never talk about is that the novel climaxes in the following way. 
The author uh, is leaving. Uh, his, he's been recovering from an accident in which his leg was broken in uh, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, or Haverford, PA, and he's going back to Europe or to England to um, f- resume his life and his fault, failed marriage, etc., etc., and he's leaving. And he's talking to his aunt Sarah, who is a devout Quaker, and he's saying goodbye to her, and this is what he writes, and it's the climax of the novel, but no one who talks about the world in the evening will talk about that which is universal in the novel. They'll talk about one aspect of the novel, which is the present, but they won't talk about that which is transcendent, and this is it. He's saying goodbye to his um, aunt. I'm afraid I can't tell you exactly what I mean, Stephen dear. It isn't the kind of thing one can explain in so many words, but I'm quite, quite sure this is true. Isherwood continues. It was then, suddenly, and for the merest fraction of an instant, that I saw, or thought I saw, what my friend Gerda had seen. There was something about the smiling little woman at that moment, something that wasn't the Sarah I had known. That wasn't Sarah at all. The look in her eyes wasn't hers. I had an uncanny feeling, it was very close to fear, that I was somehow, quote, in the presence, end of quote. But of what? The whatever it was behind Sarah's eyes looked out at me through them, as if through the eye holes in a mask, and its look meant, yes, I am always here. Well, that's on page 217 of the original paperback edition, which has a great cover of the world in the evening. And I want to say one other thing. We all know about H.G. Wells, right? I mean, we all know about his early novels. We all know about how many movies and how successful War of the Worlds was in The Time Machine and The Island of Dr. Moreau and The Invisible Man. But no one is ever going to tell you that he wrote uh, when his whole world came tumbling down by the mere existence of World War I, although I suspect there was more to it than that, when he suddenly had this kind of amazing uh, 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 twist or shocking, shuddering turn of the ship in his career, and he wrote three religious books. Mr. Britling sees it through, The Soul of a Bishop, and God the Invisible King. Later on, he said, you know, I don't even understand why I wrote those books. It was like I was in kind of another warp. It was, you know, five o'clock world, I might say. I was in another zone, but they are profound, especially Mr. Britling sees it through. They are profound, and then once the crisis had passed, it was as if he'd written them in a daze. Well, no one talks about those books, and yet they're there, and they are amazing. Well, here we are. I'm going to finish now with the French version of Son, This Is She, which was produced also by Joe Meek at the same time as the first one you heard and was performed by John Layton. But you'll notice, if you know French, that here the word that this is his true love comes to the boy or the man from within. The voice comes from his heart. It does not come from outside himself. So whoever was translating it in the French, and I presume that Joe did not know French, but someone was seconded to trans, didn't have just thought it was tar, couldn't imagine that God would say, son, this is she, and transposed it to say, I heard a voice from my heart, which really says everything that I would want to say about this subject. And I hope you've been edified by it. And I hope you'll be looking because it's really there, the presence. Thank you very much.